this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive, uh, Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. Well, I begin by bringing you greetings on behalf of all the sister churches in the West area from Glasgow to Fulton and also your neighboring sister churches all across the region of Kentucky. Um, I come today uh, not as the one you kept in the nursery as a little baby or the one that you uh, taught in Sunday school or the one you raised in youth group and took on mission trips, but as um, the West area regional minister to Uh, because when Kara Foster calls and says, would you preach for me, the answer is always yes. (laughs) And so I am so thankful to have been invited to preach today. Um, I am thankful that you all are giving her the opportunity to be at the Great Banquet this weekend and have time for rest and renewal. Um, It is a gift that you give to your staff when you do that, and I'm thankful that you are a staff that recognizes that that you are a people who recognize that your staff are human beings and they need the same spiritual moments uh, that you all need of rest and renewal. Uh, Our reading for today comes from 1 Kings 17, 1 through 16. And I want to say a little bit about that reading before we dive into it. And then I'm going to ask you some questions, so get warmed up and ready. I hope you've had your coffee today. I find that I have not had enough coffee, but hopefully you all will give some energy to this sermon. Uh, Prior to this reading, Israel's king Ahab has married Jezebel, uh, a Phoenician, a Sidonian, Baal worshiper. And Jezebel and Ahab built an altar and a temple for the god of Baal. And over the course of the next few chapters, they will make significant even... Uh, violent, systemic efforts to attempt to eliminate the worship of Yahweh, the worship of God in the northern kingdom of Israel. This passage takes us into a time in the history of the divided kingdom when it is a question as to which God, Israel, will give its allegiance and devotion. Will it be Yahweh, the God of life? Or will it be Baal, the Canaanite god of rain and thunderstorms? I hope you like the multi-sensory experience that the the staff have provided for us today to have some thunderstorms sounds that will come in throughout this worship. Uh, Baal worshippers believed that he controlled the rains and that uh, lightning was Baal's weapon. Good and timely rains lead to good crops, and good crops lead to good food supply. And so it was thought that the people's level of devotion to Baal would mean either abundance and life or famine and death. And so this passage is uh, an important one also, though, because it is the first time we see Elijah. He just kind of walks into the Bible (laughs) story. We don't watch him grow up or anything like that. He, he walks in as an important figure to know, not only because of the prophetic messages in the First Testament or Old Testament, but also because Elijah then is uh, the one often whom Jesus is compared to as the new Elijah 
uh, and there are many parallels, including uh, one of the Sunday school classes today was looking at uh, Jesus being compared to Elijah. So let's read together 1 Kings 17, 1 through 16. Let me get my glasses on here. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the wadi Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the wadi, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the wadi Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the wadi. But after a while, the wadi dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I might, may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, and first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, Neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So before we begin unpacking this text, I just want to ask you a question that I like to ask folks when we talk about difficult or new texts. What strikes you about this passage? Does it remind you of anything? What stories are stirred up in you as you think about this passage from, from other parts of the Bible? Any passages come to mind for you all? The manna, story of the manna in the Exodus. Loaves and fishes. Loaves and fishes, correct, yeah. yeah. Woman at the well, right. Some water. Oh, what else? Israelites in the desert. Yeah. 
The story of the Maccabees comes to mind for me, where the oil doesn't run out. That's where you get the, the Hanukkah story. Um, there are several healing stories where um, there's a similar set of circumstances just like this one, um, including Luke 7 and Luke 4. Any others? Yeah. Honesty and help. I'm sorry, what? Honesty and helping people. Honesty and helping people. Stories about that from Scripture. Yeah. Well, here we have two, two sections of scripture here, two pericopes that we've read. In the first, Elijah uh, prophesies to King Ahab that there is going to be a long drought that is under the control of the God of Israel. And having said this to the king, then God tells Elijah to flee to the other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan at the Wadi Cherith, where he will get his water from the Wadi, from the little creek, and be fed by ravens. Now ravens are considered unclean birds of prey. So it's really interesting that Jesus is not only commanding birds to do something and they actually do it, but that, that, Jesus, that God is commanding uh, the birds that are unclean birds. Unclean birds to feed the prophet. And he's fed well. This is our first example maybe of, of fast food in, in Scripture. I don't know, maybe the manna story is the first, but maybe this is the second. But this one, he's getting bread and meat every day, twice a day, delivered to him. And then even, so maybe it's not fast food. Maybe it's, uh, what is it when they deliver the food to you? DoorDash. It's DoorDash. There we go. Even the wadi dries up because of the drought. And Elijah is in a bit of a pickle then at this point. And so in the second part of the passage, God tells him to go to Zarephath, which is located between Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean. It's a Mediterranean seaport known for its abundant exporting of wine, its oil, its crops, its pottery, its purple dye. It's actually an area where Jesus goes later in the New Testament, I think, to take a vacation personally. I think that's what he's there to do doesn't work out that way, but that's why I think he's going. But in most years, it was a, this, the city of Zarephath was a, a successful city. It was a strong economy. But in this moment in the story, they're, are, they're having this drought, and it's leading to death. Those who are already food insecure are now starving because of the famine caused by this drought that Elijah prophesied. And once at the gates of Zarephath, he meets a widow gathering sticks to make a fire for the last meal that she will make for her son and for her before she perishes from hunger. Because it's all they have. And so he asks her for a cup of water and for a morsel of bread then. And she pushes back a little bit, explaining her dire situation to him. But Elijah says to her, those words we hear so often in the New Testament, do not be afraid. Here it seems that, to me, she has every right to be afraid. She and her son are on the cusp of dying from hunger. There's no food bank. There's no meals on wheels, no birdhouse food pantries where she could go get some canned goods. No soup kitchen. No Christmas food baskets or community garden veggie distribution. In the long drought, food was scarce. And with no husband, no family to provide for her and her son, 
There's no safety net. And by following Elijah's direction, the widow is potentially accelerating the death of her own son. She gives in to potential death, though, for a total stranger. Elijah's presence might have brought her some safety if she's accepting him to come in. That accompaniment would have made her maybe more safe, maybe would have eased her loneliness. But there's a great risk to inviting a stranger into her home. Aside from the typical stranger danger sorts of things, it's a risk to invite a prophet into your home, especially one that has already upset the king. We, know, we knew when we heard, though, that there was a widow in this story, that God was going to be up to something. The widows are supposed to be weak and helpless, but they never are in Scripture. If there's a widow in the text, we know that she's going to be stronger and braver and more impactful to God's work than her culture suggests that she should be. Maybe she felt that she was so desperate she didn't have anything to lose. But she doesn't allow her fear to lead to scarcity. Instead, she overcomes her fear and puts her trust in Elijah. She has the courage to extend hospitality, the courage to share, the courage to hope, to hope that God will provide the resources that are necessary to continue, the courage to hold that jar of meal and reach back in again and again and again and believe that that jar will not be empty. The courage to allow oneself to be used by God to bring about abundant life. What a radical story of generosity and obedience. In another way, it reminds me of the widow's mind. Does it you? Her act of generosity and obedience leads to sufficient abundance, to enough where God is now able to do a new thing. Do you know anyone like that? I have a colleague in ministry that just so inspires me. She inspires me to reach back into that jar, believing that God can make more. When I come to her and I suggest that we may not have enough money or we may not have enough volunteers or enough supplies or enough space, she always responds with this sense of calming, uh, inspiring abundance. Not because she herself is rich or because she has plenty of time or because she has unlimited resources or unlimited supplies. It's because she has seen God do it time and time again. She's come to believe in the power of God to stir people's hearts toward generosity and service. <coughs> Belief, her belief, is contagious for me. Her courage is contagious too. Of course, sometimes we can only see what we believe to be true. And the widow couldn't initially see that that jar had enough until Elijah showed her so. And her generous spirit combines with his message from God to make all this come to pass. 
Elijah himself has been living on that hope and that belief. He's trusted God to provide him food and water for a long time now, first from the ravens and the creek, and now from this widow. And the widow could have told him to go find his own food, but she found the courage of faith to be obedient to the message that if she shares, there will be enough. God took her little and made it much. And you notice that God's not limited here by ethnicity or nationality or even religious belief. These are some of the things that people thought of Baal, right? God is the God of life, not Baal. God is the God of abundance. God is the God of hope. And time and time again, the scriptures show us that our God can make a way out of no way. I believe I've shared this story with you all once before, but years ago, Eric and I had the chance to work with a church that helped settle refugees and reunite them with their families who had been left behind. And I'll never forget when we were on the phone with one of those children uh, still in Vietnam, we had the father in the, in the room with us and uh, the folks who were helping with the resettlement service. We made that phone call to Vietnam and we got to talk to the children. And one of the children got on the phone and, and uh, so we thought we would ask him, maybe to give him some hope, I don't know, but we thought we would ask him, what would he like when he gets to the United States? What would he like? And he, I thought maybe he'd say like a, you know, a certain toy or, um, uh, you know, maybe a trip to Disney World, something like that. But he said, ooh, I want to eat meat. That seven-year-old boy just wanted to get to eat meat. That was his hope, his greatest hope. He got to eat meat, by the way. <laughs> with his family. I thought of that phone call this week while we watched the news of the refugees gathering at the ports of Sudan, hoping to escape their war-torn homeland and keep their children fed and alive. They joined the millions of refugees and asylum seekers around the world from Syria and Ukraine and Afghanistan and Dominican Republic of Congo and South and Central America and so many other countries. And the news of this week also reminded me that East Africa remains in its worst drought in 40 years, forcing millions of Somalians to either live on the brink of famine or to flee to a UN encampment to be fed there. These people will need food and shelter and hospitality and resettlement and a deep hope for a life of peace. And of course we know that some do die of hunger in our world, yet organizations and feeding programs who work to resolve these issues tell us that there's plenty of food around our world. There is enough. If we do not waste, we do not hoard, and we do not cut people off in order to starve them from their basic needs for political gain or for greed. I did not take French in college, I took Spanish, but the English word for courage I read comes from the Latin word cor, meaning heart, 
And there's a French word there, too, for heart. And so the word itself can come as a reminder to have courage means to be good-hearted, to have good-heartedness, to be full-hearted. It captures a feeling to have the brave-heartedness to feel like you can face challenging situations, to overcome those feelings of fear in oneself. So in English, it's a matter of the heart to have courage. But the Hebrew word for courage is more related to this notion of alertness and boldness and strength and responsibility and determination. It's a willingness to take action and to make an effort. Not just to feel something, but to do something. And so considering these two notions of courage, both this heartedness and this action, where do you see courage in this passage today? Anyone have the courage to speak up and say, where do you see courage in this passage today? In the woman letting him in to her house. The widow. The widow's courage, yeah. The Elijah going east of Jordan to a place maybe he'd never been before, we don't know. Yeah. What else? What inspiration does this passage give to you as you think about living with courage in your life? somebody in the back to answer questions. <laughs> we didn't talk about this, actually. Anyone else? See, you can't, you can't preach a sermon about courage and just it all be from me. I don't have enough courage to do it. It's going to take all of us in this room speaking up and, and making this sermon together. Well, thinking about Elijah the prophet, what might God give you courage to say or to be, or to do. Be open to new situations. Ooh. What else? What might God be giving you the courage to do? And thinking about that widow, that widow, what might God give you the courage to share? Sharing your love. Say it again. Sharing your love. Sharing love. Yeah, it takes a lot of vulnerability. The courage to share love. And thinking ahead in the next chapter of the Bible, and some of you may have already gotten bored with this sermon and started reading ahead in the scripture, that's great. Uh, you'll see that what happens is Elijah ends up healing the widow's son who dies. He brings him back to life. And uh, it's, a, it, it's enough to make her believe. It's enough to make her believe in God, Yahweh, not Baal. 
What might God inspire you to believe? How might you grow to trust in God's power to bring new life? I hope these questions are resonating, and I hope they chew on us all, all week long. Let us pray. God, you are not only the sustainer of life, but the restorer of life. You powerfully work beyond the boundaries of Israel, beyond the boundaries of clean and unclean, beyond the boundaries of the chosen people, beyond even the community of believers to give us life and hope. You are a boundary-crossing, boundary-breaking God. Help us to hear your voice loud and clear. Give us the courage to speak when you say speak, to remain silent when we need to be silent, to act when you say act, and the courage to share when you say share.